for 15 chapters. We've been climbing this crescendo of anticipation, right? As Paul has been answering pragmatic questions, theological questions, he's been exhorting the church, he's been directing the church, he's been correcting the church in Corinth. And in chapter 15, he declares the truth of the resurrection of Jesus, right? That's what Brent and Nick have walked us through the past few weeks. And that leads to the resurrection of the dead. And now at the climax of the ladder, of the, of the letter, uh, Paul leans in to drop a little truth bomb on the people. Now what's unique about this, if you think through most of Paul's letters, the climax for most of Paul's letters comes in the middle. Think about the other letters that he's written, right? He lays all this theological argument out. He builds up to the greatness of Christ. And then he gives us all this pragmatic application. Corinthians is a little different. He's intermixed theology and pragmatic the entire time. And so now as we talk about the resurrection, he's laid out the proof and the logic for the resurrection of Christ and thus the resurrection of us as believers. He's now going to talk about what that looks like. Like how do we get there? So this transformation and change of every believer that we're going to talk about today is going to usher in ultimate victory. Victory over death itself. We're going to see Jesus kill death. Jesus will bring death to death today as we walk through Scripture. Now, if there's ever a charismatic section in Scripture with running up and down the aisles and babbling incoherently and flopping like a fish, this is it. But as Brent has said, we're not going to do that today because... Don't be weird. Whoever said that, right? That would be super weird. I am really type A, and you would throw me off if you ran up and down the aisles babbling. Uh, so we're not going to do that here. But this is an exciting part of the letter, an exciting part of the text. And I want you to be encouraged. And I want you to be empowered. And I want you to leave uh, rejoicing. Today, as we reach this climax of Paul's letter in the Corinthian church, just as Maximus declares before battle and gladiator, he says, we will see our lives live echo in eternity. Right? We will see our lives echo in eternity. Today we're going to celebrate and worship our Lord Jesus Christ for the eternal and glorious victory over sin, death, hell, and the grave. So let's pray. Holy Father, dear God, I thank you for today. Lord, I thank you for just the beauty uh, of your church. I thank you, Lord, uh, for the hope of salvation and of eternal victory that you give us through your Son, Christ. Lord, may your Holy Spirit soften our hardened hearts. God, may you remove the scales from our eyes. God, may you speak truth to us. And God, give us the strength, the perseverance, and the grit to be the salt and light, the disciples and the examples that you call us to be as we leave here today. May you be worshiped and may you be glorified. In your name I pray. Amen. Amen. So you ask, what is our policy? I can say it is to wage war by sea, land, and air with all our might and with all our strength that God can give us to wage war against a monstrous tyranny, never surpassed in the dark, lamentable catalog of human crime. That is our policy. You ask, what is our aim? I can answer with one word, victory. Victory at all cost. Victory in spite of terror. Victory however long and hard the road may be. For without victory, there is no survival. Winston Churchill, May 13th, 1940. Just months before 
Germany has invaded the Netherlands. They're coming to France. War is imminent. Churchill realizes it is time to stake the flag. What I want you to take away from that quote is the very last phrase. Without victory, there is no survival. Without the eternal hope of Jesus Christ, why do what we do? We should be pitied more than anyone without Christ. And we're going to celebrate today the victory that Jesus gives to us. Now, in order to achieve this victory, as Brent alluded to last week, we must change. Something must happen to us. Let's look at chapter 15 and read verses 42 through 49 as a recap. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. We're going to see that again. What is raised is imperishable. We'll see that again. It is sown in dishonor, raised in glory. Sown in weakness, raised in power. Sown a natural body, raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. And the last Adam, we know as Jesus, became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man, Adam, was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man, Jesus, is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of dust, right, us. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven, which we are too, right? There's a paradox there. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. So how does this decaying, decrepit, frail, dying body be worthy of the image of Christ? I have three questions that I want us to answer today. And as any good teacher who's challenging their students to pay attention, I'm not going to reference the questions again anywhere else in the sermon. So I'm going to give them to you now. You listen uh, and answer for yourself. But here they are. How can this be? Right? How can we, creatures, fallen creatures, creatures of the earth and the dust, how can we put on the image of Christ? What or whom do we need victory over? Why is victory important? Uh, we will answer these questions as we go along today. Question for you. You can use this as rhetorical, or if you're brave enough, you're welcome to raise your hand. How many of you have ever tried to change something in your life? Right? Oh, there we go. I got some brave volunteers this time around. Good. First service, I only had one hand. So there we go. See, two points for you guys. So that's really good. Uh, it's hard, right? Who likes change? Any of you people that raised your hand? Anybody like change? Anybody in the room like sadistic and masochistic enough to like change? Isaac, I'm sorry. Uh, you got one that likes change there. All right. So uh, one that likes change. I hate change. I am the most traditional. Uh, don't change anything. Uh, the way it has been is the way it will always be uh, kind of person. Because change is hard. It's painful. It's work. It's frustrating. It's incredibly defeating. Hey, let, let's be honest. January 1 is right around the corner. Everybody in this room is going to make a resolution. And we're all going to make a resolution to somehow improve the quality of our life. Kelly Shagan said, no, I'm not. I'm not going to make that resolution. He, he knows who he is. I like it. Uh, okay, so 99% of us are going to make a resolution uh, to change our life, right? We're going to eat better. We're going to exercise. We're going to spend more time with our family, right? We're going to do something to improve the quality of life. 
What happens three weeks in after you've exercised, like five days a week, you cut out all the bread and the soda, like you've done all the right things, you get on the scale and you've gained weight. Like, what the crap, right? I mean, that is so incredibly frustrating. And that's why change is so difficult. It's just defeating. But on the flip side, when you actually pull it off, man, it's amazing, it's beautiful, it's fulfilling, it's almost euphoric. It's like this drug that somehow you accomplished this great personal victory in your life. Now, here's the good and the bad news. We just said... All of us must change, right? According to scripture, we are all men, women of dust and of flesh. We must put on the image of Christ. We must change. That's got to be daunting or scary if you don't know the gospel. Here's the beauty of that statement, though. You don't have to do anything. God has done it and will do it all for you through his son, Jesus Christ. There's absolutely nothing that you need to do to achieve this change. Read with me, please, Romans 8. We're going to read 27 through 30. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, and for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he glorified. Now flip to 2 Corinthians 5. We're going to read 14 through 17. For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, Therefore, all have died, and he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh. We regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Again, Christ does all the work for us. Now, at this point, as I was prepping for this sermon and have read the first eight verses of these nine and know what the ninth verse is, I got to admit, I'm kind of nervous because I know us as fellow humans. I know our, our tendencies. To give you an example of what I'm setting up, how many of you in the room are maybe a boss, a leader, a manager, a supervisor? People report to you, you're responsible for people. Anybody willing to raise a hand? I see a few hands. Okay, how about this? How many of you have ever had the low performer conversation with somebody? Anybody ever had to have the low performer conversation with some? I got a few. Yeah, I got some big hands in the back there. All right. We got to talk after church then. I'd love to hear those stories. Um, man, what's the death nail of that conversation? <clears throat> right, it's whenever you make an excuse for the employee, right, you kind of fog the issue for them. Or here's the one that really kind of crushes it. It's the idea of over-complimenting them. Right? If you over-complement the setup, you've lost. Right? It'd be like, man, Matt, we really love you on our team. We love that you uh, serve well. You always have a great attitude. You welcome people. Uh, man, you're just, you exemplify everything we want as an organization. But, dude, you're always late. It's like, I need you to be on time tomorrow. But, hey, keep being a great teammate. Thanks for what you do. Looking forward to working with you. What does Matt hear out of that conversation? 
He only hears how great he is. That's right. He only hears how awesome he is. He never hears the call to action. So here's my concern today. As we work through today's passage, these first eight verses are victory and utter awesomeness. We're going to have a ton of fun celebrating the victory and the glory and the majesty of our God and his son, Jesus Christ. The last verse, though, is a threefold call to action. And I'm going to put fingers in your chest as we get to that call to action. So yes, we're going to celebrate. Yes, we're going to worship. And yes, we're going to relish. But we're also going to be convicted to stay the course, to run the race, to fight the fight, to take action as a result of this great victory. So here's my prayer yesterday and today as I've been prepping, that the Holy Spirit gives us joy followed by conviction. And the Holy Spirit then compels us energizes us and encourages us in the work that he has called us to do. Now, if you're taking notes, we're going to break today's passage into three sections. Section one is 50 through 54, and that's victory through change is what we're going to title that. So victory through change. Section two is 55 through 57. That is victory through Christ. And then verse 58 is going to stand alone, and that is victory through action. Victory through action. So let's read the entire passage, uh, and then let's kind of work our way through it. So here we go, 1 Corinthians 15, 50 through 58. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. That word translates as secret. We shall not all sleep. That's imagery for the idea that we shall not all die. And we, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable. And we shall be changed. For the perishable body must put on the imperishable. Look at all this imagery for like changing clothes, right? Putting on new garments. And his mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written. Death is swallowed up in victory. Verse 55, O death, where is your sting? O, o victory, O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. So section one, victory through change, verses 50 through 54. I'm going to read the first verse again. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. We immediately see Paul juxtapose this temporal world, right? This world that we live in today and now against the eternal world. Now, this is not a call to Gnosticism, so you got to be careful here, whereby Paul is somehow attempting to say only the Spirit lives on. When he says flesh and blood and perishable cannot inherit, that doesn't mean that somehow our bodies will not move forward. Okay, But he's saying that the current state of our bodies, because they are decayed, cannot move forward. He's instead defining the conditions of the battle to come. 
Now, this temporal world is dying and decaying. Everything in our world is rotting away. As Brent mentioned last week, we all have a sell-by date. As I've been growing my hair out, I see sell-by dates every time that there's another white hair pokes up, another wrinkle on the face. When I realized I threw my back out just eating turkey Thursday, right, instead of actually doing something, I realized that my sell-by date is coming and coming fast. Death is coming for us all. Our bodies are corruptible. They're frail. They're decaying because of sin. Just as... Back to the text, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Now, this is kind of a cool parallelism if you look at it. So break it down into two different phrases. First, you see flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Second, you see perishable, nor does perishable inherit the imperishable. So you see this idea of flesh and blood and perishable in both parts of this sentence. You then see cannot and nor followed by kingdom of God and imperishable. So he's setting this idea up that there is nothing in our current states that we can do to inherit the kingdom of God. And if we are going to inherit the kingdom of God, we must change. There is a necessity for our change. Because even the strongest of us will die unless the, world comes, the Lord comes first, as we're about to see. Right? We as humanity have always fought immortality. Look at our fairy tales, our folklores, and our mythology. And think about our ancient civilizations. Right? Egypt and China, they would bury provisions and transportation into the afterlife. Health, wealth, and the prosperity has become its own heretical uh, theology and gospel. We justify ourselves with our work-based and performance-based Salvation. Think about, I swear, every time I turn on the television, the commercial is take this testosterone in order to regain this part of life, right? This surgery or this injection to fix the pain in the knees and the pain in the joints, right? It's, it's, we're inundated with it on the radio and on television. There's an ever-growing market of medical improvements and aging reversal. We have always been looking for the fountain of youth. Botox, face facelifts, implants, skin tightening, creams to make you look useful, surgery to reverse the effects of aging. Right? So why are we all fighting? Because we're all doing this. We are all fighting for another minute, another hour, another day, another week, another month, another year, and another decade. Why? Why is that like born into us? Well, think through how creation began. Was Adam meant to die? No. When Adam was created, he was meant to walk with God and to commune with God in the garden for all of eternity. We were created for eternity, but sin robbed us. Our deepest core desire has been plagued by death because death is inevitable, traumatic, obscene, Ugly, sad, painful, brutal. It's an aberration of the created order. It is not what God originally intended. So if we believe that death wins, if we believe that that's just it, that we die and we're gone, then why fight? Why is Paul setting up this battle? Why fight? Because as we're going to see, we know that victory is to come. 
The battle to come is an eternal battle. It's not a physical battle. It's not a battle that we can win in which uh, we will take no part in the future eternal battle. Instead, we're going to be invited to the celebration victory feast. Jesus, the King of Kings, is going to come on his white horse and his pure white robes with the sword of truth from his mouth, and he's going to vanquish his enemies. As believers, we have been given eternal life, made new and invited to the biggest wedding celebration of all time. But here's the necessity for the change. We are way underdressed, way underdressed in our current state. Now, this is not a four-points wedding where you can just roll up in a hoodie and blue jeans and Crocs, right? That's not what the eternal wedding feast is going to look like. I was super nervous about wearing blue jeans today, so I put a cardigan sweater and nice boots on. I wanted to kind of, right, prep it up a little bit. That's the four-points way. Uh, Our perishable flesh-and-blood bodies of this world are nowhere near sufficient. Nowhere near sufficient. It's kind of like Anne Hathaway and the devil wears Prada. Right, we're going to roll with this clothing scene. Hey, hey, dudes, if you need a great chick flick, uh, instead of Hallmark movies, just recommend Devil Wears Prada. It's a great movie. You'll like it, and your significant other will like it. Uh, you get that for free. Uh, but in that movie, right, Anne Hathaway has to go from Walmart frumpy to Paris runway chic. Right, if you know that movie, right, there's a move, there's a necessity in order for her to be a part of the crowd. She has to make a change. So in order for us to inherit the kingdom of God, we must make a change also. Turn with me to Ephesians 1, 11 through 14. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the, to the praise of his glory. So in order to inherit the kingdom, we have to change. As believers, as this verse shows, we have been sealed by the Holy Spirit, which is a guarantee of our inheritance. Right, as believers, we know eternally right, God holds us. We will be with the Lord forever. However, we cannot be with the Lord in our current state. So in our sinful and fleshly states, we have to change. Our perishable mortal bodies must take on the characteristics of Christ's resurrected body. Turn with me to Philippians 3, 20-21. But our citizenship is... In heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. We are aliens in this fallen world. Jesus tells us he has gone to prepare a place for us. In Revelation, we see a new heaven and a new earth. We see, G- we see the coming of the new Jerusalem, right, where God will again dwell with his people, because this Jerusalem, this eternal new Jerusalem, is our citizenship, for we are children of God. Just as Paul has been arguing the veracity of Jesus' resurrection, he now has a secret mystery of hope to proclaim. He's now going to tell the people, to answer the very first question I gave you, 
How is this possible? How are we going to change? Read with me 51 through 54. Behold, I tell you a mystery. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For the perishable body must put on the imperishable and the mortal body put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the same that is written. Death is swallowed up in victory. Behold, a mystery, a secret. We shall not all sleep, so not all of us will die, but we will all be changed. Now, this secret, as we've seen in 15, the secret is not that we're going to be raised. Paul's already laid out the argument for the resurrection. Instead, the secret or the mystery is that we will be changed. Right? Brent jokes last week, we're not going to raise as night of the living dead and be zombies in heaven. There's no glory in that. Right? We're going to put on righteousness. We will be given our heavenly couture. Right? We'll be given our heavenly robes to wear, to stick with the clothing analogy. We will take off the flesh and blood, the perishable, and put on the imperishable, the immortal, and the eternal. For the perishable and the flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God on its own. We require a change agent. Something perishable and dead cannot make itself imperishable and alive. Right? There's no way that a dead fish brings itself back to life. Right? There's no way that those scraps of turkey in your trash can magically put their atoms back together and become turkey again. Right? It's impossible. The dead cannot make itself alive. There's nothing that we can do for ourselves uh, in order to achieve this change. And what the scripture shows us is it happens in a moment and it happens in the twinkling of an eye. Whether dead or alive, all will be changed now, in this text, you'll see the phrase, be changed. What's kind of cool about this, and reassuring about this, to be quite honest, is that it's a passive tense text. That means there is nothing that you or I can do. It is done totally and completely to us. God does it all. It's as if we have a heavenly valet, and we are instantly clothed and changed, adorned, with the imperishable. Now the reference to the trumpet here I also find incredibly cool. Think about every epic movie you've ever seen. What does the trumpet announce? What does the trumpet always announce? It announces and proclaims the arrival of the king. In 1 Kings, we see the trumpet sounds as Solomon is coronated. When we look at Exodus 19, the trumpet sounds as God descends on Mount Sinai. In Zechariah, the Lord appears to save his people as the trumpet sounds. And then finally, in 1 Thessalonians, as the Lord returns, the trumpet sounds. So as Christ our King returns, the dead will rise anew, immediately followed by living believers. Christ will gather all of his elect in an instant at his second coming. Believers who have died are raised anew with imperishable bodies. It's kind of cool language here, right? He connects this idea of death and perishable. So they, dead, the dead will rise with imperishable. And then he connects this idea of mortal with those who are living. So then living believers will be raised into or clothed with the immortal. 
So believers, both dead and alive, are changed and given victory over death. Now look at verse 54. There's kind of three key things I want you to see here. The very first word of verse 54, when, you can underline that, when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then, underline then, shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. So when we are changed, as the verse starts, then shall come to pass the reason for the change, the necessity for the change. Death is swallowed up in victory. Now Paul here is quoting Isaiah 25.8. Let's turn there and kind of read, uh, read the original text. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from the, all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. Death is no longer to be feared. Death is not the end, as Brent said last way. It's the gateway to the eternal. Death has no eternal power or hold over the believer. Death is conquered forever. But the victory and change as we put on the imperishable and the immortal, and death is swallowed up in this victory. So victory and change leads us to victory in Christ. Victory in Christ. Second section, verses 55 through 57. Let's read that, please. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now Paul starts this section by mocking death. This is like the greatest stick your tongue out, wiggle your fingers, nanana boo boo kind of moment in the New Testament. He is straight up making fun of death, personifying death and kind of spitting it back in its own face. He quotes Hosea, he, well, he paraphrases Hosea 13, verse 14. Let's flip there and see that. I ransom them from the power of Sheol. I shall redeem them from death. Now here's the paraphrase. O death, where are your plagues? O Sheol, where is your sting? Where is your victory? Where is your sting? Paul personifies death in this text and gloats in the victory, the total destruction of death given through Jesus Christ. The sting of death, sin, and the power that, the sting of death is sin, and the power that sin has over us has been drawn out. Think about a wasp bite or scorpion sting, right? It's the sucking out or the leeching out of that venom. So it has been removed. Up until this end, Right? We are plagued by sin. Up until when Christ returns, we are plagued by sin. Our flesh is in a vicious cycle of sin and death that is made known to us by the law. Romans 6.23, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. Because of the sin in our life, we will face death and decay. However, for eternal victory... There is life in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Jesus has brought death to death. This is cool. Jesus kills death, if you think about that. With death defeated, there is no sting. There is no, 
No longer does death have power over the believer. We're not beholden to the punishment demanded by the law. Is there not great victory in that? We are not held to the punishment anymore. We've been bought and paid for by Jesus Christ. For he is our Lord, he is our master, he is our victor, and he is our king. Sin has been leached out of us. It's powerless because Jesus perfectly fulfills the law, removing us from its chains. That should bring great hope and great joy to us today, church. Verse 57, I'm going to read it first in the ESV, and then I'm going to read it in uh, Young's literal translation. So here, first in ESV, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Young's literal translation, so they don't add any of the extra words to it, uh, says this, quote, and to God, hyphen, hyphen, thanks. And to God, thanks. Now this transition from mocking, gloating, and spitting on sin, think about that grammatically, what Paul's doing, is a big, deep breath pause to say thank you. Right? Paul, in the original text, wants the audience to realize this is a moment to step back and to reflect and say thank you. Say thank you. Right? What we have been doing this entire week in God's right, divine knowledge and coincidence to put our church here in this passage today, Thanksgiving week. It's an opportunity to step back and look at all of the things that God has done for us, for his church, and say thank you. We are to recognize who the victor is and who the deliverer really is. Right? It's an opportunity to say thank you to our eternal Lord and God and Savior. Thank you for being our conquering king. For without him, none of this is possible. Right? None of this victory is possible. So why does Paul stop to give thanks? And it reminds me of a post-game interview on the field of whatever the team's captain or star is. Bo Nix did this great uh, yesterday as Oregon won. It's the idea that the first thing that comes out of their mouth is I have to thank my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Right? I have to thank my God. And it makes me really ask the question, how often do we do that? Like when God moves in our life, I think it's easy to thank God in, like in the big things, in the Mount Everest moments of life. It's easy to thank God. Is there thanks for the breath that you breathe today? Um, right, people ask me at work, hey, how you doing? I'm doing great. Oh, yeah, and they feel like that's a casual kind of thing. So my next statement is, I'm above ground. Right? I'm above ground. And that's not meant to be cheeky. Uh, it's really meant to be, man, I'm just thankful I have life today. I'm thankful that today I can serve my Lord and my Savior. As believers, we know none of this is possible in our own accord. I have no power over sin. You have no power over sin. Only Jesus can give us power to defeat sin, death, hell, and the grave. And this is the gospel. It is the hope that we have for this dying and ailing world. 
For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Right? Our sin has separated us from him. It's created a chasm. It's created hostility between us. And there's nothing that we can do to reconcile ourselves. We just read about the reconciliation uh, of God. So God sent his perfect, imperishable, immortal son, Jesus, to become perishable and mortal in human form. He was born of a virgin. He worked and lived. He bled and cried. He obeyed the Father, even to death on the cross, where he took our punishment. He lived the perfect life that we cannot live. He stood in our place. He took the full wrath of God for our sins. He was our payment. He was our propitiation. He was crucified, buried, and rose three days later, defeating sin, death, hell, and the grave again. And as we have studied these past three weeks and today, resurrecting us in his power and in his glory. This is why Paul pauses to give thanks, and this is why we must pause to give thanks. Thanks for a gift that happens only through Jesus Christ. Young's literal translation, and to God. Thanks to him who is giving us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. As we studied this summer, we inherit the kingdom of God through Jesus Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, as revealed in scripture alone, to the glory of God alone. And as we have seen throughout chapter 15, victory is guaranteed through Christ alone. We have seen victory through change in the first section of today's passage. We've seen victory through Christ in the second section. And now in the final section, verse 58, we will see victory through action. Our exhortation and call to victory through action is verse 58. Now hang in with me there. I realize that I just recapped the solas and I affirm there is nothing we can do to earn victory or salvation for ourselves. However, if you remember how I opened today, you're all low performers. Okay, I got a little laugh. Good. Somebody's still awake. Thank you very much. Uh, we're all low performers. As Brent would say, we're all turds. Uh, so don't lose sight and don't turn, tune out. We've had eight verses of awesomeness, and it's easy to focus only on the good. It's easy to focus on the compliment. What I now need you to do is focus on the responsibility and the action that Paul calls us to. I'm a physical therapist by trade. Uh, I do still jump in clinic every now and then. Uh, at my practice, we have a phrase of response. Anytime someone says they have to do something, that like grates my nerves. When, someone, when one of my team members says, oh, well, I have to stay late. This patient's running late. I'm, I have to stay and see them. That like drives me insane. I'm in healthcare. What I do is a privilege. I don't have to do anything. I have the privilege and the honor of caring for people at like their darkest moments. Post-surgery, stroke, heart attack. Like everything I do is a privilege. So our corrective words, I'm a little passive aggressive and I'm pretty snarky if you haven't picked up on that. Uh, my, my words to somebody when they say, well, I have to, dot, 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 uh, it's usually to look at them and say, you don't have to do anything. You get to. 
Like you get to. You have the privilege and the opportunity to care for a sick patient. No different from every one of you in the room, whether you're in healthcare or not. Because this whole world is sick spiritually. This whole world is dying spiritually. We all have the opportunity to care for the spiritually sick. We all have the opportunity to care for a scared loved one. To counsel, to show empathy, to speak gospel hope and truth into someone's darkest moment. We all have the opportunity to give hope to the hopeless. And this is the same is true here in this verse. Knowing that our work is for the glory and the worship of Jesus Christ. As Paul says, our work is not empty or vain because of that very fact. Our work is not a have to. Our work is a get to because of the Lord. Because of everything Paul has explained in chapter 15 leading up to verse 58. And ultimately that Jesus Christ has done for us. There is work to be done. Now is not the time to become lazy or rest on your laurels. As believers, yes, we are new creations. Yes, we are given victory in the end time. And we are given victory now. So live life as if you are presently victorious. Live life as if you are truly thankful for the work that Jesus Christ has done in your life. Do you live that way? Is my question to you. As we end putting a finger in your chest and in my chest. Because I am equally guilty. I realize when I stand up here, I may not be preaching to a single person in the room except to myself. Uh, I am equally guilty as we look at this charge. Do we live as if we are victorious in Christ? Do not fail to realize that God has already saved us, is continuing to save us, and will eternally save us. And that should spawn gratitude, thanksgiving, grit, perseverance, complete Obedience to the Lord. James tells us to work out our faith, right? He tells us that our faith should energize works. Paul tells us to do everything for the Lord in Colossians. Jesus tells us to go and make disciples, all out of response to Him. Now, when you look at these imperatives, none of them are past tense, nor do they have an ending, except the final return of Christ. They are continual and constant until the final trumpet and the Lord returns. But how quickly we become complacent in our salvation and how quickly we turn to live according to our own desires. We so easily rationalize our behavior as long as the things we do aren't too bad. Right? It's so much easier when you're sitting in the break room and you hear your coworker talk about their marriage falling apart or whatever it is that's going on in their life. Right? To just go... Man, Matt, sorry, you're just the face I keep seeing. Uh, sad to hear that, hate that for you, and walk out the room. Right? It's a ton easier to do that. It's a ton easier to do that than to lean in and share the gospel. How dare we? How dare we shy away from those moments? And I realize the HR litigatious world that we live in. But man, there's an opportunity to share hope. There's an opportunity to share the gospel. Think back to other examples. I mean, God, I haven't killed anyone, cheated, stole, committed a cardinal sin. Uh, it's so easy for me to just focus on my own self-made goodness and my own man-made idols. Think through all the things that we do to take God off 
of his throne and put other things there. God, you gave me kids, so it's okay for me to put them on a pedestal and worship them as if they're my golden calf, right? We all do that. Moms, maybe you're a little more tempted to do it than dads, unless, Dad, it's your glory days, sports events, and then, then your kid's on the pedestal. But, man, we all do it, and we do it quick. It's so much easier to worship our kids than it is to worship God. I love my kids. I would die today for my kids, right? I would give anything for them. Man, do I feel that same way about the gospel? That doesn't mean in no way are my kids more important than the gospel. What's more important than my eternal relationship with Christ? What's more important than for my children to see the devotion and the commitment that I have to my Lord and Savior? Not that they are the most important thing in my life, but that my Lord is the most important thing in my life. I mean, God, I have a super important job. People call me sir at work. So, you know, work can be my pedestal. Right? How many of you got the 50, 60, 80 hour a week job? Look, I'm not telling you to quit your job today. Don't hear that. Because we saw in Colossians, God says to use your work to glorify him. Do everything that you do to glorify him. So I understand that there are necessities where work demands attention. But is work your God? Is work what defines you? Is work what gives you value? Is work what you worship? Or is God central in the work that he has given you? I mean, God, I have a really big bank account, drive a fancy car, got a big house. So God, obviously you blessed me and want me to keep adding zeros and building bigger things. Right? We chase that all the time. We chase the 401k, we chase the American dream, we chase the zeros constantly. Is that what gives you worth? The scripture tells us that burns away. Right? You can't take that into eternity. I really hope there's a really cool race car track and there's an Augusta National in heaven. I mean, I hope, you know, that those two things happen. But I can't take what I have here into eternity. And it's not worth worshiping. My kid is the next athletic superstar, so missing church every Sunday during ball season, that's obviously okay, because I know you'll understand. I'll pretend to pray, and I may share the gospel, but I really won't. Uh, and it's okay for me to teach my kid that his selfish desires are more important than church and God. Look, I'm the chief among sinners there. I had a, I had a daughter that played competitive soccer. I get the understanding. I had a son that swam year-round. I swam. I understand the pull and the draw. I understand the weight and the difficulty. I understand how hard that decision can be. And I'm not saying isolate your kid, put them in a bubble, never play sports. That's not what we're talking about. What we're talking about is what's important. What's the main thing? What's the main thing? Does your kid see you sacrifice or does your kid hear you ask to sacrifice in order to worship? Because in American culture, we worship one day a week. Let's just be honest. We worship one day a week. Jeremy just got back from Ecuador with several folks who went to Ecuador uh, to help in our Acts 29 church plant and partnering churches there. And the comment he made uh, was, it's so cool how they are constantly pursuing 
the people in their communities. They visit new members or new visitors daily in order to keep them engaged. Are you constantly pursuing the gospel? So how do we keep the main thing the main thing? Verse 58. I know we're over time. Hang in with me. It's about another three to five minutes. Let's read verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast. Underline that, please. Immovable. Underline that, please. Always abounding. Underline that, please. In the work for the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. So three key words there are steadfast, immovable, and abounding. Let's look quickly back, or if you looked quickly back at verses 1 and 2 of chapter 15, you're going to see that Paul is ending his letter, or ending this section, the same way that he began it. In, chapter, in verse 1, you see, in which you stand. In verse 58, you see steadfast. This is the idea of being constant. Right? The main thing is the main thing. Keep the gospel centered. Next, you see hold fast in verses 1 and 2. That complements be immovable in verse 58. That means be committed. Don't be dissuaded. Don't be moved by scoffers or doubters or the world. Keep the main thing the main thing. And then being saved in verse 1 and 2. That complements always abounding here in verse 58 means be consistent. Put your hands to the plow. Pursue the Lord and His work daily. Let's read 2 Corinthians 5, 18 through 20. To close. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to Himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. What did He give us? He gave us a ministry that's something that is active, that we pursue it's a ministry of reconciliation that is in Christ God, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not putting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us believers, the church, the message of reconciliation. Therefore, the action, we are ambassadors of Christ. Ambassadors can't sit in their holy huddles, can't sit in closets and can't sit in places that they never engage we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you, implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. So because of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the victory given through his resurrection, live your life with confidence. Live your life with joy. Live your life celebrating the victory today. Because we have victory through change Victory through Christ and victory through action. Let's pray. Dear Father, dear God, I thank you for today. I thank you, Lord. Uh, I thank you for this church. It is such an encouragement, God. Um, such an encouragement to my heart. I thank you for the people who are here. I thank you, God, for those who are not able to be here today. God, I pray that as we leave today that you would encourage us in your victory. You would give us great confidence in your victory. But God, you would also, or and God, you would also energize us and move us to be salt and light in this world. It's in your name I pray. Amen. Amen.